0: And welcome to Heads Up, a show about mental health wellness. I'm retired counselor Sue Mullen. And with me today is my co-host, licensed family therapist Diane Vaccarello, and our two guests who are continuing their visiting with us this morning in part two of Suicide Awareness and Prevention. Welcome to Carol Marsh and Candice Porter from Connors Klein. Hi, thank
1: you.
0: Thanks, Sue. Happy to have you back again. Thank you for being so flexible as to extend our programming from last week. Um, Listen, I'm going to jump right into it and hope that our viewers have seen last week's episode where Candace and Kara were uh, helpful in explaining to us a little bit about the organization that they both represent, Connors Climb, which is an organization that deals, as I mentioned, with suicide awareness and prevention. Candice and or Kara, I know that the bulk of your work is done with schools. Explain to our audience, if you will, what exactly it is that you do with schools when you bring your services to them.
1: Absolutely. So um, thank you again for having us. And I like to always open up any of these conversations with really calling out to 24-hour resources. That is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and there's another great one called Crisis Text Line. I always introduce my conversations with highlighting that that will be included in today's show. Um, and for Connors Climb, you know, what are we doing? So our mission is to provide suicide prevention education training. And how does that translate here locally and then across our state as well as nationally? And something we're pretty proud of that we worked hard to advocate for was the passing of legislation that went into effect this past July. So it's noted as Senate Bill 282, which is now 193J, which is an act relative to suicide prevention. So this is the first time for our state that we're now requiring schools to provide suicide prevention education training to their faculty, to the community slash parents, and to the students. And what we do as an organization is we go in and provide evidence-based programming to meet these requirements. This varies from a two hour, a full day, a series of trainings to really train our champions, our faculty, so that they have the tools and resources to then train our youth. And our goal is to make this part of a curriculum that is an ongoing basis. And the program itself, we know that there's evidence-based programming for seven through 12. Mm
2: -hmm. And then we're
1: also training our elementary faculty to really understand their role as a trusted adult But to also lean on the amazing work they're already doing with social emotional learning, which we call SEL.
0: So, Candace, are you basically going in then and helping school staff? And that includes the nurse, the administrators, the coaches, the uh, classroom teachers, everybody basically that's in a school building. Yep, Um, the
1: paraprofessionals, the support staff, because it really does take a village as we all know that everyone needs to know what their role is in helping our youth.
0: And are you training them up to know what to listen for or what to look for in terms of the information the kids are sharing?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So what we do is, you know, with the SOS program, the main uh, sort of acronym is ACT, acknowledge, care, tell. And so, you know, we're, we're starting with the adults saying, you know, these are the things that we want you to understand, the warning signs, the risk factors, um, precipitating events. And then we also explain to them about protective factors as well, so the things that are positive in those kids' lives. And what we do is we give the staff this common language that they can communicate with one another about you know, when a child is in need or if they see something, you know, the see something, say something applies here as well. Um, But then really, you know, following through on, you know, talking about that ACT message with the students, um, talking about how no secret should be kept. Um, Sure, you do, you know, want to have some semblance of, you um, you know, a good relationship with that child in terms of trust, but at the same time, you can't keep things like that a secret. It's, you know, our job is to be the adult, is to be that mandated reporter, like we talked about uh, in the last episode, and really make sure that they're understanding, acknowledge, care, tell. Um, And it's just such an easy message that it really translates across, you know, all different, um, you know, adult realms. So from the food service staff to the superintendent, from the youngest child to the oldest child, it's just such an easy message to acknowledge, care, and tell, to act.
0: Well, and I think Diane would agree with me uh, that when you're working with both faculty and families, uh, you want to make sure that you're jumping on this information early in the cycle, as early as possible. I was uh, talking to some uh, former school counselors this week, and we were saying that, you know, back in the day, right, anything of concern got reported to the counselor. That was the teacher's responsibility and prime action was just to bring it all to the counselor but experience has taught us that lots
2: happens before it gets to that point am i correct in that diane absolutely it's all about the prevention and a lot of our um, early prevention and awareness programming has really been aimed even towards elementary school And of course, uh, McKelvey, which is an intermediate school. So I'm curious for um, as far as Candace and Kara, what your um, message, how do you adjust the messaging developmentally for younger kids as well as for the parents of those kids? How do you present information to elementary school versus high school, for example?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Diane. And, um, you know, I was thinking about it this morning and you know, I think a lot of what we do, especially with our, our young our young children, and we're saying elementary, is just understanding, you know, what are they presenting like in the classroom? What are they presenting like at home? And we're really looking at early signs of depression, you know, particularly it could be related to anxiety. And it's a lot more of, you know, what are we seeing and what are we hearing? And we're encouraging the faculty to pay attention to changes in behavior. And for all of our youth, you know, we. We are in a time where we don't really know our students, right? They were hybrid or fully remote. They're just now back in our district for the our younger students, they're just back there now. So, as a parent, what I would say is, you know, if I'm worried about my child and I'm seeing some things at home, I would reach out to my teacher and say, "You know, we've noticed a couple of things here. Are you noticing anything?" And honestly, that teacher might say, Uh, I don't really know, you know, one, you know, Alexa's just back in my classroom full time. I I don't really know what her normal patterns are. This is a great opportunity to say, well, do you mind maybe reaching out to the teacher she had last year, because she really knew Alexa. And if the two of you guys can come together and maybe talk about what you're seeing and what was her quote typical behavior last year, that might help fill in some of the gaps. And you know, that's a great way to really encourage our teams to not only lean on each other within a grade, but to kind of always look back and think about who were other trusted adults that were involved in that child's life. Mm-hmm. And then as we get older, you know, we're teaching our faculty and our parents you know, the classic warning signs and risk factors that Kara mentioned that you can find on our website. You know, and We like to coin risk factors as things we might not be able to see. You know, this might be a child internally struggling with anxiety, they might be having obsessive compulsive kind of thoughts and feelings, they can be struggling with depression itself, but we might not be able to see it. When We think about the warning signs, it's something that we can actually see. And Kara does a great job of talking about a magnifying glass, you know, these are things that we might be able to see or hear. So we're really trying to educate the parents to pay attention, as well as the faculty and bring that information forward. And then for the youth piece, we're teaching them the same things. You know, they're going to notice changes in their friends' behavior. And they're going to see and hear, and they need to kind of come forward and tell a trusted adult. But then also teaching our parents and actually just supporting them that it's okay for them to step up. And, you know, a lot of our youth, if we're kind of lecturing them on what we want them to do as a parent, you know, they might not listen, they might, but if we're educating our our youth on how to come forward for their friends and people they care about, we then need to make the parents and the the educators and the support staff feel comfortable to make that next step to actually cross over that bridge.
0: Candice, can we go back to the secrecy aspect or the trust aspect in this equation? Um, How often, and Diane, I would include you in, in on this discussion too, how often do you think it is a problem that kids are telling adults things and saying, promise me that you won't tell somebody else. Kids are telling other kids things and saying, promise me you won't tell someone else. Or your own child comes forward and says to you, I wanna tell you something, but you have to promise me that you won't tell somebody else. Is that a frequent scenario?
3: Well, the fact that it's in every single training video tells us that, yes, it's a very, very frequent scenario. Um, and so that's one of the biggest hurdles that we, we talk about overcoming is saying that, you know, these are the kinds of secrets that you just can't keep. You, you have to tell and that's why we have and we have to train the adults to do this as well. We're training the adults. Yes, you're a trusted adult. So these kids are going to come forward to you and they're going to ask you to keep a secret to, to promise them something. And what your reply needs to be, I care about you too much to keep that secret. I care about you. And so I'm I need to get you the help that you need. So Ooh, I'm yeah.
2: glad that I'm glad you. that you bring that up. <clears throat> and Kara's right, it's a part of every sort of should be a part of all sort of training and psychoeducation around this subject, but it's also really important in general, I think for parents to talk with kids and for us all to be really talking along the lines of distinguishing privacy from secrecy. It's really a continuum there, but secret keeping generally is really not a good thing in general. Kids can talk about keeping secrets and things like that, but even that is a good opportunity to talk about the difference between privacy and secrecy. And when, we, when it comes to safety and something um, like suicide ideation, even just thinking about it, anytime it's safety related, secrets should not be combined with safety. Um, and so it's all about opening it up, pulling back the curtains, really um, shedding some light onto this in very systemic ways. Uh, But it's also really teaching our kids what the difference is between those things and why it's important not to make a promise like that or certainly keep a promise like that. Um, How do we,
0: um, Diane, how uh, how do we frame it in terms of trust? Because I've heard people say, well, I can't say anything now because I said I wouldn't. And if I do, that person won't trust me anymore.
2: Yeah, and that's where, again, it's sort of this education around the idea that um, someone is coming to you, because, and that's a very important thing. If somebody tells you and trusts you, then they can um, also trust you to do the right thing. And we have to really explain how the right thing is. Sometimes the brain is not able to shift thinking, and that person is sort of stuck in the way that they're thinking, but that's not necessarily how they'll be thinking later on. And also it's really important to emphasize in all relationships what repair is and what that means, mm-hmm. that we can break trust or we can have a moment where um, we are we make a mistake with something just in general. And how do we repair things like that? How do we get back on track with our relationship that it's not a um, finality and that a person's life is at stake, that it's really important that we make decisions in our friends and family and and loved one's best interest. Even, you know, overhearing something um, that you don't have a close uh, relationship with, it's more of an acquaintance, it's still better to err on the side of caution and safety. And that's just something we have to sort of support and shift in our society in general. Yeah, it's interesting.
1: Yeah, and something I think that happens naturally, you know, in, in the treatment process, is a debriefing of Mm -hmm. you know the incident what the action steps are and that's typically the the person getting referred or you know getting into treatment but I also when we go into our schools and we talk to our parents and our youth it's really important that they're also debriefing you know regardless if they were the individual that was flagged or at risk or in a crisis you know what was that like because if we don't debrief and kind of come to the other side and we leave with those kind of yucky feelings and uh that was really hard we're less likely to maybe do it again. So we want to really make sure that, you know, it might've been a challenging experience. We might've had a quote, break trust. That repair piece that you said, Diane, is so important that we feel like there's a little bit of closure, at least a little bit of calm understanding so that if it happened again, you know, we would act.
3: Right. And I think the other point that Diane made was so important about the nuance of privacy versus secrecy. You know, we're asking you not to keep secrets, but that doesn't mean you can't maintain that person's privacy. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean, you know, oh, I'm going to tell the world that Candace is in trouble. Instead, what it means is I'm going to help Candace facilitate the help that she needs. And I can still maintain her privacy and hopefully, repair our trust in one another after the situation is underway. Right. I think um, I, I, I agree with you, Kara. We, particularly
0: in adolescence, as you ladies all know, right, we have black and white thinkers. It's all or nothing.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: uh, being able to teach them the nuances of you can tell people who are in professional positions to offer help. And that's not the same thing as announcing something in the cafeteria.
2: Exactly. And it's about extending trust. So one of the things I know Candace and Kara are doing is really making efforts to have people slow down, even as a family, and identify who are the trusted individuals within your family system, within your friendship system. And it's really important that we, um, you know, I remember when our kids were really young, we um, had decided on a fire escape plan. We decided there was this rock, we used to call it pride rock, you know, for, movie lion king when the kids were young and pride rock is where we were going to meet and we had a code word also for safety you know the word you know early on was a very young child's type of word don't tell us what it is they used to laugh at and (laughs) um giggle at but it was one that you know we had these sort of like plans that they knew if someone were to approach them if there was a fire situation this is no different we have to prepare our children, our teenagers um, ahead of time and really have conversations and think about Who is it that you would go to and what might you say? Um, And extensions of trust mean that we're able to make a decision for this person's safety and trust in another person, like an adult um, or a a neighbor, somebody who we feel like we can go to and would know what to do. And so if we have that ahead of time sort of discussed, it makes it a lot easier. As we know with teenagers, even adults, thoughts can come in and come out in a moment. Even the idea nature of suicide ideation thinking about suicide can be a decision that's made in a singular moment. Mm -hmm. And um, so in these cases kids need help to really um, pre process or pre load what it is that they need to do in those singular moments.
0: So I have two questions for for our distinguished uh, trio here what do I do if I'm a parent and a chi- my child comes to me and says that their friend has talked about harming themselves that's question number one question number two is what do I do if my child comes to me and tells me that they're thinking about harming themselves so who would like to take that um,
1: yeah go ahead yeah. well I could jump in with the you know the parent piece and you know there's a resource Source, you can reach out to us and um, there's a couple of great articles that kind of guides you through it. But as a parent, if my child comes to me and says they're worried about their friend, you know, they posted something on social media or said something in passing and they're concerned. The first thing I would do as a parent is to reach out to that parent, especially if I have a relationship with that parent. Mm-hmm. And it, it might go great. It might not. But that's kind of the first step. And really kind of understand your own gut. Do you think that that parent's doing some kind of fall through? And you can ask your child, you know, do you think she's getting help? How are things going? And that might be the end of the story. And that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. There might be scenarios where you're not sure. And you don't really know, is the parent kind of responsive? And are they actually getting their child the help needed? You know, that's a really great opportunity that you can reach out to that child's counselor at their school, as you talked about Sue back in the day, but that's still a resource that's still Mm -hmm. a role of our school mental health staff, that they're a fantastic kind of flag to raise and say, you know, I'm worried about so and so. You know, if it's an emergency and this is after hours, you can always call 911. Mm -hmm. You can call our fantastic Bedford police and, and request a wellness check and say, you know, we know for a fact that this was said and this was stated, and that would warrant outside folks coming in to do an assessment. And you know that's kind of the worst case scenario, but is something to lean on, especially if you feel like there's no other immediate resources. Oh yeah, you
0: can refer to it as a worst case scenario, but I think it's really helpful for parents to know mm-hmm. that they,
2: they're they not alone in this. Yep,
1: yep. And then I think Diane would speak great for like a
2: parent as far as reaching out, yeah. Yeah, I I appreciate again, that idea of going bigger. Um, We do need to keep that in mind when we aren't sure what to do or, um, you know, we have a whole layered uh, series of resources as Candace mentioned. So the school counselor, um, a teacher, superintendent even, Um, the police department, 911, in any emergency, um, or, you know, even if you're just like unsure, they can also walk you through different resources and scenarios of what to do. But I would say that as far as a parent, a child of their own coming to them, and, um, you know, first of all, the fact that they come to the person means they do trust you and they do are looking for assistance and help. So obviously being able to um, let them know that you're listening and that you understand what they're telling you, that you're taking it seriously. And um, you know, those are the times that we also wanna go bigger and we wanna talk with um, that, that child and say to them, um, that we will support them in terms of getting some help, that help is, there is help for this, um, that it doesn't have to be something that they suffer and struggle with, or that it's long term, um, that we can really provide them with some hopefulness, the idea of mentally, when someone is in a space like that, they feel hopeless and helpless. So when we can offer hope and offer help, um, in, that, in that regard, it does um, help alleviate uh, some of that immediate concern. Um, Of course, the idea that um, having conversation, some stigma or some myths associated with this are that we shouldn't be talking about it because the more we talk about it, the more likely a person will have ideas about doing something um, to actually harm themselves. And that is, that is definitely a myth. We need to be talking about it. We need to be um, letting that person know that they aren't invisible, that we do hear their words and get them the support that they need. So obviously that's also reaching out for um, mental health providers and again, school counselors and um, being able to identify clinically what's going on for this person. Oftentimes depression is associated with this. And sometimes depression is the secondary to uh, lots of anxiety that's been going on for a period of time. And some of this can be quite invisible. I think that a lot of times people are talking about signs to look for, uh, but it's also important for us to understand there are some layers that are um, really internalized and very invisible. And some of one of the things that um, was mentioned earlier is the idea of um, OCD as a diagnosis, as well. That is, um, runs concurrent with this in the sense that they're um, obsessive compulsive disorder, obsessive portion of that, the, the O, is around um, thoughts that ruminations. Um, thoughts that are uh, you know, over and over again that they just can't sort of get rid of. And the behavior or the compulsion that goes along with trying to reduce those obsessive thoughts, certain behaviors that they're are compelled to do in order to create or um, have some type of uh, alleviate that anxiety, it's under the anxiety umbrella. And so the ruminating thoughts can be very pervasive and very um, difficult to even know that a child is suffering with that Mm -hmm. or a teenager is suffering with that. And oftentimes um, we do need to ask, we need to talk with them about, you know, are, do they, are they worried about something? Are they having, you can even ask them, are they having intrusive thoughts or thoughts that keep coming in that um, loop around that they can't seem to get rid of? Um, And oftentimes when a child is hearing somebody ask them, they're like, yes, I do. And and they don't even realize sometimes that that's not typical, that that's not something that everybody has going on for them. So so is
0: there, Diane, is there relief in just acknowledging that there is an issue?
2: There's a there's a um, immediate sort of um, small and temporary relief that doesn't get rid of the obsessive thoughts yeah. um, or intrusive thoughts, but there is treatment for that, and we can support a person um, in really getting support. Um, but there is a correlation between suicide ideation and even attempts with OCD that's pervasive. Elxthymia um, is another uh, component where people basically it's a mutation. Um, of emotions Mm -hmm. and it's hard for them to even feel or express joy or um, interest in things and um, emotions are muted. And there's kind of like a numbing out of that. So there's, you know, when somebody is really just sort of flat and they're pulled back and they're isolated, those are some of the pieces. And it might be that their temperament or personality was sort of like that. You know what I mean? And so that's where it's hard or tricky to know the signs. Um, but that's why we have to know. We have to talk with our kids also, um, and when ask them. You know, it, even so, if it happens, so thoughts.
0: so if I'm the parent. And I suspect that these things are going on. And I suspect that my child is having thoughts of Mm self-harm. I can get professional help. What do I do? Do I, as a parent, do I access 911? Sure. Can I access the Bedford police. What do I do if I have an emerging situation on my hands?
2: Emergent situation, absolutely. 911, call the police. Either of those two scenarios for sure. Um, always safety first, even if we're like, I'm not sure if this is happening right now. I don't know. Err on that side. Um, as Candice had mentioned bringing this to guidance department, even a child's pediatrician to their doctor, being able to contact them. I know that um, in terms of getting support through mental health, um, if you're sort of on hold with that, contact the pediatrician, again, go larger and let the child know that you are, again, responding and taking it seriously. But yes, in an emergent situation when you're like, the child is actually talking about um, not only that they're having thoughts about it, but a specific plan on how they would do that, that always sort of ups that um, a bit in terms of the intensity or the risk and um, being able to reach out to any of those people that we're talking about with 911 being first.
0: you do you folks provide
2: information
0: about two parents as part of your program?
1: Yes, we absolutely do. Um, we're actually hosting a, an online training for the um, Hampton School District next week. And the same, we go over the signs, what's their emergency plan. And we also educate that, you know, we know there's a something called the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. Mm-hmm. We know that well over 30% of our high school students have had thoughts of suicide. You know, but we also know that that greatly reduce, reduces by almost half with actually made a plan actually follow through with an attempt goes way down to around, um, you know, 2% or less, and then actually needing follow-up goes down, you know, that's actually a a treatment. So we try to educate that, you know, these thoughts are going to be something that maybe occurs with your youth, but as Mm -hmm. Diane said, you know, those thoughts can be an immediate action step, but if there's not a plan and they're saying, I don't want to do it right now, I've just thought about it, you know, that's where you can reach out to the school, to the pediatrician. And part of what we're looking at that I think is a nice way to change for New Hampshire, particularly is educating our provider networks on their role. Because the last thing we want to do as a parent is, you know, sit in the emergency department for hours, waiting for a mental health assessment, you know, that. That is important if it's a crisis, but there's so many other things that we can exhaust before we get to that crisis point.
0: Ladies, uh, I'm, I'm gonna see disappointment on your faces because we are coming down to our final seconds. Uh, I know that we are going to provide contact information on our screen at the end of the broadcast, uh, or even perhaps throughout, uh, about where people can go, what they can do to uh, access mental health services, and what to do maybe in a crisis. I want to thank Candace Porter and Carol LaMarche deeply for spending this time with us, And uh, we look forward to perhaps seeing you back on this program again with updates on how it's going and how widespread uh, our mental health wellness program as it applies to suicide prevention and awareness is
2: in New Hampshire moving forward. All right, Diane, closing words? just appreciate uh, Candice and Kara and Connor's climb um, and what all of what you're doing to stick it to stigma and break this down so that we can really have these open conversations and learn more about prevention. All right, great. Good
0: to see you all again. Diane, next week I will see you and I think we might be talking about whether or not perfect is possible. You're on. Until (laughs) then, take care everybody. Bye. Thank you. So if you're feeling low